This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and is number 12 of the series dealing with the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the 33rd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. We shall have to refer to the closing verse of Deuteronomy 33 in a moment or two. It strikes you as strange as you read it. At the end of that period, of that season of blessing, he nevertheless speaks about some who are acting as liars to them. One of the thoughts that we have to keep in mind is that this word millennium uh, which we associate with chapter 20, we are dealing with Revelation chapter 20, you remember, has passed into our common language so that anybody who has an ideal plan or any scheme that is a sort of uh, idea of peace and plenty and prosperity, someone may turn around and say, oh, you're asking for the millennium. And it, it would be defined as an English word for a, a sort of an ideal condition especially one emphasizing peace. Well now, chapter 20 flows out of chapter 19. And uh, come right into the middle. That's right. Oh, take recording listeners. That's nothing to do with the book of the Revelation. Um, chapter 19 is the coming of the Lord. Chapter 20 is the consequence of the coming of the Lord. Now you look back in chapter 19, verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, all that coming is to be in operation, all those associations of war and rod of iron and fury in this millennium, because he's coming as king of kings. And when the seventh angel sounds, and you're well through the first part of the book of the Revelation, when the seventh angel sounds, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he's going to reign. <coughs> you think of the Psalm 110, which you will perhaps turn back to it. It's one of the most oft-quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Till I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. They will. But you see, what I think we've got to remember is that it does say they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And what we've done is to say they shall not hurt 
will destroy throughout the whole length and breadth of the earth. Israel are going to be a, a light and a center of peace and a radiation of truth to the ends of the earth. They shall be a kingdom of priests in the millennium, ruling on the earth. But it takes time, according to the teaching of Scripture, for that to have its effect. <coughs> and if you will remember, we'll look at uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of the Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 21, <coughs> To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Well, that is the millennium. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the millennium. Then chapter 2, <coughs> verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And there was one attempt to so emphasize the word rod and never say the word iron as to make it a very gentle rule. But he goes on to say, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers. Well, that sounds a little bit ruthless, doesn't it? So that you see, we must disabuse ourselves of this idea that the millennial kingdom is one of universal peace. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the knowledge of the earth of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it's got to start from Jerusalem, those waters. And they flow down until they blot out the Dead Sea. But that's the picture, radiating from Jerusalem. So we must come back again to this chapter 20 and acknowledge this fact that all that we positively know about the millennium is enshrined in ten verses. And we must be on our guard lest we take and pick all sorts of passages out of Isaiah and the Psalms and the various other places, and just write against them the word millennial. It may not be. And then when we use the expression, the millennial reign of Christ, we're almost saying that the reign of Christ is just going to last a thousand years. But it definitely says in the book that of his kingdom there shall be no end. A thousand years is only just a preface. And what we shall discover, we might as well anticipate it, even though I have to say it again presently, is that this is the last opportunity for delegated rule to manifest what it can do. In the millennium, there will be twelve apostles sitting upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The people of Israel will be a kingdom of priests themselves and be ruling with a rod of iron the nations of the earth. There will be all this emphasis there will be David, as far as we gather from Old Testament Scripture, raised from the dead to be the Viceroy of Christ upon the earth. And you have the heavenly Jerusalem uh, ruling over the lot. And when the millennium is over, there's a rebellion big enough to be described as the sand of the sea. Well, that doesn't sound as though it was perfect peace, does it? So let's face it, that when the millennium is over, this is what we read that he must reign until he has put down all rule and all authority. He doesn't say bad rule and bad authority. He puts the lot down and he alone, as though we are, it's dawning upon us that written across the millennium as it's written across all scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New, where 
Christ is all, and in all is the only ground of absolute certainty. So we're not going to be miserable because we have been perhaps entertaining an idea of the millennium, which may be wrong. Let's entertain an idea that this is the 7,000 years, the complete week has run its course, and God says now, on the eighth day, the day of God that follows, you'll see what sort of world it will be when he takes to himself his power and reigns alone. And then our willing, submissive son yields the kingdom up to the Father that God may be all in all. That's the goal. So we've got steps to that goal and here we have a few of them. Now, if we notice, I think we must go back to um, Daniel the ninth chapter to get a start now on this. Uh, Daniel the ninth chapter, you will remember, contains that great pr- prophecy which practically spans the time from the building of Jerusalem until the second coming with the gap allowing it for this present interval in which we find ourselves. But into that we mustn't enter tonight. Daniel the ninth chapter, verse 24. Seventy weeks are marked off from all others. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish transgression. Now, that could be interpreted as a very blessed consequence of the precious blood of Christ. We could take that as our text. But if we did, we should have to ignore the margin which tells you that it doesn't mean that. In the margin, you'll find it says to restrain transgression. And the word occurs ten times in the Old Testament and is translated a prison. Or a house of restraint, as it's put in the margin. So here we have the indication in Daniel that it's not going to be completely eradicated at first. It's going to be restrained. Satan is not going to be eradicated. He's going to be restrained. We've already seen in the first verse that he was taken and he was put into the abyss and is there for a thousand years while this other experiment is allowed to run its course. And then while we have this passage open, it goes on to say, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of prophecy. And so we have in this, um, to make an end of sins, is to seal up. See again, we could lift it out from its context and say, yes, that's what Christ did on the cross, to make an end of sins. But the margin says no. This means to seal up, just the same as you have in the 12th chapter, to seal up. Put the seal upon it. And it is the word used for the sealing of uh, the lion's den in the same book. Or uh, chapter 12, verse 4 and verse 9 will give you the same word if you want to check this. And thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. And again in verse 9, And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. It also means to stop up as a well. Uh, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 3 and 30. Would you like to check that? Because as we're dealing with a rather uh, strange aspect of truth, 
It's good to get your chapter and verse for anything that bears upon it. 2 Chronicles 32 He took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city. And again in that same chapter, verse 30. This same Hezekiah also stopped up, stopped the upper watercourse of Gihon. So it means, you see, to stop a well. Satan is in prison and sin is bottled up. Now will you look at chapter 20 of Revelation again and look at the end of the millennium, when the millennium has run its course. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And you might have said, oh well, you'll find no ground now to work upon. A thousand years of peace and the bless- blessing of the reign of Christ will have taught people their lesson. But it says the moment he's, he's out, he, he deceives the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is in the sand of the sea. That's after the millennium is over. So you see, it's only been restrained, it's been bottled up, it hasn't been eradicated. Here is man's last opportunity before Christ takes over completely. It has been the expression of many, and most of us have thought of it sometime. Wouldn't it be fine if the devil were not here? With the implied idea, if only a Satan weren't here, we'd be a lovely lot of people. Well, God says, I'm giving you an opportunity. I'll give you a thousand years with Satan gone. And then what? You notice the, the statement. He deceives the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. It doesn't say he deceives Israel. They are a kingdom of priests. They are a nation born in a day. It begins at my holy mountain and then spreads. But it takes time and it goes on after this. The nations of the earth presently are going to bring their glory. You notice in chapter 21, verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. That's the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven when the millennium is over. So we've got to come back to chapter 20 and look at it again and hope that we do not allow other spectacles to be placed upon our nose. But read what God himself has said. So we have now Satan in the abyss and sin in prison stopped up like a well that's been blocked up by an enemy. And then if I remind you in Psalm 8 which looks back to Adam and looks onward to Christ when it says... uh, to still the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting to remember that in Psalm 8, when it says those words, to still, it means to keep a Sabbath. The enemy is going to be obliged to keep a Sabbath. This is the Sabbath of the Lord, these these thousand years, it's the seven thousand years, and Satan will be in prison. He won't be willingly keeping Sabbath, but he's stilled in that sense. And the earth is free from his presence. And then he's going to be let loose a little season. It says uh, at the end of um, uh, chapter 20, verse 3, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. Will you look back at Revelation 12? Chapter 12, verse 12. 
Now Satan is cast out of heaven and come down to the earth, verse 9. And it says in verse 12, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time, and that's the identical words, he has but a little season. He has but a little season. So it's happened, you see, just before. He only has a little season, and then he's finished. Here he's bottled up, he comes out for a little season, and he's finished. No more was said about him after the end which we have in chapter 20. Well now, we want to turn our attention to other features that is rather a general expression, something particular. I want you now to turn to three psalms. Psalm 18, I'll tell you the others afterwards. Psalm 18, verse 44. Psalm 18, verse 44. Uh, we'll read the context a little bit. Verse 42. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind. Well, that's comparable to breaking them into shivers like a potter's vessel. And I did cast them out as the dirt in the streets. Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people, and thou hast made me the head of the heathen, a people whom I have not known shall serve thee. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves unto me. The strangers shall fade away and be afraid out of their close places. Now the reason I've asked you to consider that peculiar passage is the note in the margin. Instead of the word submit themselves, it says yield feigned obedience. And in the, uh, the next note is that the Hebrew word is to tell a lie. Well, it's a strange thing that this word means to be feigned obedience and to tell lies, that we should read that they submit themselves as though it's willing. In Psalm 110, it says of Israel, my people shall be willing in the day of my power. That's willing obedience. But this is feigned obedience according to the margin. But we'll have to examine that a bit more carefully in a moment. Psalm 66, verse 3. Here we have another reference using the same expression and the same marginal comment. Psalm 66, verse 3. Uh, make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honour of his name, make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thy enemies submit themselves unto thee. Margin, yield paid obedience. Through the greatness of thy power they shall yield feigned obedience. And one more passage. <coughs> Psalm 81, verse 15. Verse 13. All that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways, I should sooner subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but they of time should have endure forever, and so on. Here again, the haters of the Lord yielded feigned obedience, or lied. What else? Three times. 
the writers, the translators have not been quite sure of themselves. These are the only passages where they translate that word to submit. Why they put it there, well that's for them to say. If they'd have been consistent, all the other passages mean feigned obedience or telling lies. And if they put it here, well nobody have been bothering. But you see this has upset a good many people's interpretation. Now will you go back to Deuteronomy 33 and read once more the last verse. This is exactly the same words that we have in the Psalms. Psalm 33. Uh, did I say Psalm? I mean Deuteronomy 33. Uh, verse uh, 29. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O Lord, saith of the people, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thine excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. They shall be found liars unto thee is just the same word that we've been looking at in the Psalms. They shall be found liars. And I noticed in the Septuagint, the Greek version, that they have used the identical words in the Psalms that they used to translate this passage. So there'd be no hesitation about it, you see, on the part of those who lived all those years back. Now you say, will there be any enemies or any rebellion or any revolting of the nations in the millennium? Will you look now at the prophet Zechariah chapter 14? The prophet Zechariah chapter 14. Jerusalem is now is first of all besieged and then it's delivered and it says in verse 8 and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea in summer and in winter shall it be that's the reference that the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters that flow out of Jerusalem shall eventually blot out the Dead Sea because in Ezekiel's reference to this he tells you the water goes down as far as En Gedi, which you may know is on the banks of the Dead Sea. That's only by the way. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And then we are told there's going to be the, the uh, rehabilitation of Jerusalem. Verse 11. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that are fought against Jerusalem. Yes. But you say, when that's all over, will there not be the universal peace and obedience? Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations, dreadful words, aren't they? Our politicians are telling us that we are looking and having an awful prospect of almost annihilation. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up year by year, year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, you say, there you are. That proves the millennium is a universal peace. They go up to Jerusalem, and the tabernacles are an indication that at last peace is there, the living in tents. But then I stopped myself, didn't I? I didn't read the next verse. And that's very unwise. And it shall be that whoso will not come up, oh dear, here it is, the very book says, that even though the Lord is there, 
and Israel are there, and Jerusalem is there, and the Feast of Tabernacle is waiting for them, some of them won't go up. And they're going to be punished. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Even upon them shall be no rain. So there's going to be with the holding of rain to the nations of the earth to remind them of their obligation and to punish them for their disobedience. The one exception is Egypt. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague. Of course they do have rain, only it's a bit further away from their land than they think. So it's a good type of the world, Egypt. says we don't bother about rain, we've got the river Nile. It's like the little child said, we didn't want milk from an old cow, we have it from a dairy. That's about the same argument that the world has, and sets God on one side. Not so here. So you see, here in these passages we looked at, it's already indicating <coughs> that when the Lord is king, and Jerusalem is the centre of the earth's worship, there's going to be a disobedience. There's going to be rebellion. There's going to be plague. There's going to be the withholding of rain. So immediately we face that, we say no, also the possibility that some nations will yield faint obedience. As the word is translated, shall come cringing. Rotherham translates it, shall come cringing unto thee. I don't know whether you like a cringing person. They're the persons I abominate. So if you want to talk to me, speak out plainly, but don't come cringing, friends. We don't feel that that is at all acceptable. Fancy nations in that day coming cringing, feigned obedience. And so we have this particular expression. I'll give you the spelling of the Hebrew word for you to check for yourselves. We like to encourage a Berean spirit both in this chapel and among you listeners at the ends of the earth. I spell it in the English letters K-A-C-H-A-S-H Kakash. Twenty-eight times it comes in the Old Testament and you'll discover that it's practically continually translated cringe, tell lie, or feigned obedience, instead of the idea of willing submission. <coughs> and then, look at the uh, Revelation 20 again, <coughs> to see after the millennium is over, this reference to the nations in the four corners of the earth which respond. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devour them. That's the end of the millennium. One friend objected, he says, it's not, this is when the millennium's over. But that's what I call a get-out, don't you? Because the, the millennium runs to its very end, the moment it's finished, this takes place. Well, those people that, that rebel weren't invented or created at that moment, they were there all the time through the millennium, and they rebel when it's over. Well, now, let's look at this. It was also played very low, uh, the sand of the sea. Why should it say they were like the sand of the sea? Well, most of us would say, oh, that means a tremendous number. Let's make sure if it is so. I'll give you one quotation. Perhaps you won't even want to turn to it. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. It's a common expression used quite a number of times. 
Here's one. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. So you're not left guessing that as the sand of the sea means something that you cannot number. It's no good playing this down then and saying, oh, it was a little tiny revolt, that's all. It was as the sand of the sea that is so numerous that it's no good trying to number them. That is when the thousand years is finished. How can you say that it's been a period of universal peace and prosperity to end up like that immediately the tempter is at work again? I did remind you that the word bottomless pit can be read into Genesis 1 verse 2. The same word is found in the Greek Bible at one end and the other. The earth became without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the bottomless pit. And in the beginning Satan may have been put in prison and he came out and deceived man the moment he was let loose and is put in prison again at the end of the book and he comes out to deceive again but this time to finish no more. And in between comes the period of testing which we call the period of the ages. Our redemption is being wrought out. I did not read right to the end of Zechariah. I ought to have done, but I'll, I'll go back in just without turning to it again and remind you that at the very self-same time that the nations are said to be disobedient, the people of Israel are now so holy that they shall take a pot out of the kitchen and it will have the name upon it, Holiness unto the Lord. They no longer have to have a few pots that are sacred in the temple. All Israel will be a kingdom of priests and the very utensils they use will be like the holy vessels of the temple. What a difference between that people and the ones that refuse and have to have the plague and the withholding of rain. It shows you a tremendous contrast in the very self-same period. Well now, Gog and Magog, of course we can go down to the Guild Hall and we can say, well we can see they've got two there carved in wood, the city giants. Uh, but I think we'll go a bit further than the Guild Hall and we'll look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. There must be a reason why these peculiar names are given and the reason I think is to throw us back to their occurrence in the Old Testament scriptures. Ezekiel 38. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now I'm not going to speculate. There are some who think that Meshech is the way of spelling Moscow. And I dare say you could even find the names of some of the Russian people that have been uh, in the papers if you search long enough. I don't know. All I know is they're called Gog and Magog. And uh, we'll leave it at that and get the character of them rather than try to pinpoint them down as to any particular nation. And it says in verse 4, I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws and will bring thee forth and so on. Here is a people that are evidently a warlike people attacking and having to be dealt with severely by the Lord. But look at chapter 39, it goes on. Therefore thou son of man prophesy against Gog, and say thus saith the Lord God, 
Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel, and so on. And look particularly at verses 17 and 18. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, Speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and goats, and bullocks, and all the fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus shall ye be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, saith the Lord God. Surely, friends, you are already anticipating that I'm saying to you, let's turn back to Revelation 19 and see it all over again, shall we? Revelation 19. This feathered host, this sacrifice, which has to do with the flesh of kings. 19th chapter, verse 16. He hath on his vesture on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This is the New Testament expansion and commentary on Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. There they are described at full length. Here it's condensed in a few verses. But they're coming up against Jerusalem, and they're coming up against the king. So what do we find then? We find that just before the millennium, and just after the millennium's over, Gog and Magog are at war with the Lamb. Here we get a desperate feeling that in spite of a thousand years amnesty, I've said the word amnesty, and I suppose if I were to say to you, you know what it means, you say, of course I do. But I suppose you wouldn't first of all jump to the conclusion it meant something to do with a bad memory, would you? It is amnesia, an amnesty. I forget it. A holding back for a thousand years. And the Gog and Magog that we find in chapter 19 is practically the same character as the Gog and Magog that come out after a thousand years. And at last, no more temporizing. Right through these six thousand years, right through the thousand years that follow, there's been a long suffering on the character of God. We are so inclined to emphasize the grace of God the mercy of God, the love of God, that we forget sometimes these terrible statements that are made concerning his wrath and concerning his character. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God unprotected by the work of Christ. And so we find, here we have enmity. 
who had the satanic seed, Gog and Magog, rearing their head again after a thousand years of the reign of Christ and his overcoming saints. And this time, there is no further toleration. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night for ever and ever. That's a dreadful statement. The forever and ever is unto the age and finish. Not for eternity. The words forever in the scriptures are a period of time which we call the ages. Then it finishes. All that will be absent when at long last the kingdom is laid at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. So here we have then the millennium bounded on either side by this terrible invading army. We have a restraining of sin, a bottling of it up, a putting it in a well with a stone over the top, putting it into prison, all these words are used, a restraint, with the one thought that at last God has made a beginning. Jerusalem will no longer be a byword in the earth. You read the Old Testament statements concerning Jerusalem that is yet to come in association with the new heavens and the new earth. I think we've just got time to get that link together before uh, the signal goes up for our finishing. Uh, Isaiah chapter, somewhere up here, about 66 somewhere. Uh, 65. <coughs> 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And you may say, well, that's the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. Well, let's go on for a minute, because I remember reading in the book of the Revelation, there shall be no more death. That's I'm quoting scripture. All right, we'll go on here then. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall no be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that will not filled out his days. For the child shall die, an hundred years old. But the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Hey, what's all this? To, to live a hundred years and then die. But the, the revelation says no more death. It says to live a hundred years and be accursed. But the book of the Revelation says no more curse. So you see, we haven't got yet to the final statement about the new heavens and the new earth. This is the anticipation. Shall we go on again? At the end of this chapter, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall each crawl like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. You say, well, there you are. We will keep telling you that's the millennium. But you haven't let me finish the verse, have you? Here it is. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, said the Lord. And we've transferred that to the whole world. Now, in the millennium, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains. When the millennium's over and Christ takes up the rule, they shall not hurt nor destroy throughout the whole length and breadth of the earth by the time he's finished. And that's just the difference. So instead of the millennium being the beginning of a new movement, it's the end of man's testing. 
and in the best possible circumstances you could imagine, man still fails. And God then says, well now, that's the end of the lesson. Whether we shall, I think we will all learn the lesson by then, God intends we shall. And there will be a universal acknowledgement. O Son of God, take to thyself thy power and reign completely. For until that takes place, there'll be no certainty. And we can be little anticipations of it in our own private lives. And the church to which we belong, it has written the words I've already quoted, where in that church Christ is all and in all an anticipation now of the day when God shall be all and in all then. Now we have other things to deal with with regard to this millennial kingdom and that must wait until we meet together on another occasion. But I commend to you that you search and see as true Bereans, test out all these features step by step so that we entertain no false ideas as to what God has promised and what he is going to accomplish.